Okay, so we're diverting from Deuteronomy for a time so that we can look at the outer darkness and ask the question, what is the outer darkness? Where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Um, there's two kinds of weeping and gnashing of teeth, I think. Well, okay. That's why we're studying it. Okay. That's You're getting into it. That's how we got on to You're getting into it. Don't interpret, right? <laughs> we, uh, Car Carol, thank you so much. We just got done making copies of Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30. And just remember, the other passages that we're dealing with are Matthew 8 and Matthew 22. If we need pages on that, does anybody need the Matthew 8 and the Matthew 22 pages? You need those pages? Okay, well, I'll get those to you, Tanya. Um... Let's see, Tanya needs pages. Um, and you have... And you have... Yeah, there they are. 8, oh. eight oh. 22. Okay. But Tanya needs 25. Jeremy. Thank you. Yes, here's 25. And you need 8 and 22? Okay. And also... Hard to Okay, great. Thank you. So now we're, everybody take your Bibles, it's turned open to Matthew 25. And because as good Bible students, you just know that when you get into Matthew 25 and you're starting in verse 14, that tells you what? That. You probably need to look at 1 through 13 before that, right? Now remember, one interesting thing that we know about the concept of the outer darkness is that from a strictly Bible study standpoint, Matthew is the only author who brings it up. Does anybody know, excuse me, what Matthew 24 and 25 concern itself with? The kingdom. <laughs> okay, that, that, that's, that's part, Sorry. yes. The Lord's return. Okay? So let's look at 24, verses 1 and 2 and 3 first before we jump in. Matthew 24 in our Bibles, because this is really the beginning of this section. In fact, if you know we've talked about this, one of the greatest hindrances to reading the Bible is chapter and verse numbers, because it wants to make our minds break. And we don't want that. We want to get rid of that. We want to try to get rid of the headings and read it on in. So whenever we come to 25.1, Jesus' teaching didn't stop. Okay, that's important to recognize. This is all still in the same setting. 24.1, Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. And he said to them, do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. And as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, so notice there's been some travel that's taken place, leaving the temple, going to the Mount of Olives, you're now outside of the city. It says here, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Thank you. So this question, these three questions that have been proposed are automatically end times questions okay end times questions so what we're dealing with is the end of the world and jesus's answer to these things okay 
Now, we could go through and, and verse by verse it all the way through. I encourage you, if you haven't read this, read it on your own. But we want to skip forward to 25, verse 1. And the reason why we want to look at 25, verse 1, is because this is the natural paragraph break, which would move us forward because on our sheets, 25, 14, what's the first word? Four. So as good Bible students, we're observing the fact that four, if you want to mark it, remember, put a heavy underline under four, and you want to bring out an arrow that's going to point you back to the previous point. And here's why we need to read Matthew 25, 1 through 13, because look at verse 14. For it is just like a man about to go on a journey. Stop. Everybody see the italics there? Which is what? It is. it is. What's it? Do we know? No. We don't. We don't. So if we're picking up in the middle of this, we need to understand. And the reason is, is because when it was written in Greek, the subject is already implied. What's going on is not something that's confusing. So when we're picking up a passage like this, we've got to go back to the first paragraph break and see if it answers this question as far as what is it. Okay. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, and my, my translation says, again, it will be like a man going on a journey. Okay, again, it will be like. What's it? We've got to know that. So let's answer the question of it. 25.1. Then the kingdom of heaven will be, com will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now. This is a pretty serious little thing because we now have our subject under consideration, which is what? Kingdom of the kingdom of heaven is the subject under consideration. If that is the subject under consideration, we've now already answered what it is. Okay? So it's the kingdom. It's the dealing with the kingdom of heaven. So I'm going to circle the word it, even though it's in italics, and I'm going to write kingdom of heaven and I'm going to put as my reference next to it 25 1 okay. chapter 25 verse 1 so it refers me back to where I got this answer of what it is so now let's read 25 1 through 13 and see what it's about then the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom five of them were foolish and five were prudent for when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the prudent took oil in flasks along with their lamps. Now while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. But at midnight, there was a shout, Behold, the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the prudent, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, No, there will not be enough for us and you too. Now, so much for helping your Christian brother and sister out, right? If that's what this situation's talking about. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourself. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. Later, the other virgins also came, saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. But he answered, Truly, I say to you, 
I do not know you. Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. Now, pause for just one second, because you do not know the day or the hour. Have we heard Jesus teach on that before in the immediate preceding context? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, where? 24. 24 what? 36. 24-36. Turn back to 24-36. Notice what Jesus says, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Now, I want to show you something really quick. If you have here in verse 36, the idea of the statement that no one knows, and you turn over to 25, verse 13, be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour, okay? Good grief, it just escaped my mind what this is called. It's not a chiasm. It's a. It's not a pericope. Here's here's what it is. Here's what it is. When you see a phrase, you'll 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 see a phrase in the Bible, and then you'll read on a little bit, and you'll see what seems like the repetition of the phrase. What the author's trying to show you under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is that that is a bracket of thought, uh, and I can't remember what it's called. Um, it was on my tongue and then it was just gone but you'll find them all throughout John and the idea is is that the author wants you to understand this is a unit that all involves the subjects that are the bookends they're like bookends and all the content in between are satisfying the criteria of what the author wants you to know about those bookends so notice the subject under consideration is the idea that no one knows the day or the hour now if our interpretation is correct if we take Jesus's words that he said in 2415 about checking with Daniel the prophet about when the abomination of desolation is going to happen, then we understand that there are seven years of tribulation that is left to take place in order for the end of the world to culminate, we want to say, in the return of Christ uh, to happen, the second coming. There's been 69 years that have happened, but the Savior was cut off as far as Daniel 9 tells us, okay? Now we have a gap, and it blows my mind with these people who are called amillennialists. Ah meaning no, millennial meaning 1,000 years. <laughs> that they believe that there is no millennial reign of Christ. It's not going to happen. There is no millennium. And the biggest reason why they have for their argument is, oh, well, that's easy. Because there's no gap between the 69th and 70th week that's mentioned in Daniel chapter 9. There is a gap that is there. And for them not to address it or to say, I just don't believe it, is not a credible enough argument to satisfy anybody. It's there. And so since you have to deal with it, that you can calculate. You can sit down and do the math. But what event did we talk about that we know you don't know when it's going to happen? The rapture. The rapture of the church. You don't have a clue when this is going to take care of. It could happen at any moment. In fact, that's the very definition of the idea of imminent. Any moment it could take place. So if you have stated here in 2436, the day of the hour, no one knows. You look over at 2513, it says here, be on alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. Worse being shown that this is a unit of thought. Now it's killing me what this is called. And because it's in John, 
Google doesn't know, so. Well, it's because Google's not a Christian. Um, I'm just kidding. Um, good grief. I can't think of it. Anyway, regardless, I will find it, and I will feel dumb, and I will tell you next week. Um, and I'm sure whoever's going to listen to audio of this is like, it's this, it's this. So, anyway. What is 25 about? 25, 1 through 13. What's it about? What do you notice about that first before we even step into verse 14? Because we need to understand the subject under consideration. The kingdom of heaven. What's that? The kingdom of heaven. Okay, so the subject is the kingdom of heaven. The Lord's return. Okay. Yes. The Lord's return how? See, we have to be careful here. You said the brackets, the bookends are per se around that portion is... I'm talking about the rapture. Well, I'm saying that we, as far as it's creating a unit of thought that it wants us to understand. But just because it's talking about the day and hour no one knows does not mean that we automatically presuppose that everything's being talked about about the rapture because the rapture is not the subject under consideration. The kingdom of heaven is the subject. So, So even though we have an unknown time reference in verses 13 and in 24, 36 before does not mean that the subject under consideration is the rapture. It's the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is very forthright about that. And that's why we have, we, have to, we have to pay close attention to that. Otherwise, what you'll interpret about the ten virgins is a partial rapture. Everybody see that? Only the five that were prepared went. The other five got left behind and had to endure the tribulation. Which is an, it was an extremely popular um, interpretation of this in, in the mid to late 1800s and if you know Watchman Nee I believe Watchman Nee held to that view as well so is the cry in verse 6 first Thessalonians 4, 6, 4 or 16 possibly I don't know so, I don't know that there's any way to know that yeah, it doesn't cross reference but we don't know if that's the case we don't know if it was like a cry it was actually the sounding of a trumpet we talk about a resounding trumpet kind of thing but, but remember we, we can't afford to think just rapture here that's not the subject and see if we're sitting here we're going oh these are the bookends and so that's what we're looking there you know for and our mind will drift into rapture without us paying attention to it we have to keep on the fact that this is telling us something about the kingdom of heaven there's no similarities between the ten bridegroom or the ten brides and is there ten churches in when they're talking no 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 okay all right so that was just a yeah, that was just mind vomit. Thank you. <laughs> it's okay. I'm just messing with you. But the preparation of the, the brides has got to be it's related to us, obviously. Okay, maybe. In a Jewish wedding, there were ten bridesmaids. Okay. Now, let's let's walk through this and let's just observe some things. 25.1. Then the kingdom of heaven will be comparable. So, notice, we're comparing it to ten virgins. Now, immediately, you've got to give yourself some grace here. Why? Because you're talking about the subject of the kingdom of heaven, and you're comparing it to individuals, okay? So let's, let's everybody slow down and not get too crazy with it. Now, remember, what is the point of a parable? Well, it's going to teach something. It is a story that comes alongside a truth that Jesus wants you to know, okay? Whether it's factual or not, we don't know. It could be. could not be. We don't know. The important point about it is, is that we're getting the main thrust of the text, what goes on here. So notice, it's ten virgins. 
who took their lamps, all of them have lamps, and went out to meet the bridegroom. All of them go out to meet the bridegroom. Everybody see that? Now watch this. Five of them were foolish, and five were prudent. Now keep in mind that, okay? They're divided right down the middle. Four, there's your explanatory language, uh, your causal conjunction, if you want to call it that. When the foolish took their lamps... They took no oil with them. Now stop. Let's, let's, let's take ourselves back to olden times and let's think about when lamps needed oil. And what do we see as a problem here? Why would you not take oil? Almost, it's, almost an, it's almost an absurdity, isn't it? Yeah. If you've got a lamp and you want to keep it burning, why not be what? prepared notice the whole idea here is about preparation in fact it's interesting that jesus tells you five foolish five prudent and let me tell you why the foolish are foolish notice that he's going to unfold it for you so it says here verse four but the prudent took oil in flasks along with their lamps so they had enough going on they were prepared enough to keep it burning. Why? Because they didn't know when the bridegroom was coming. Yes? Okay. So look at the next part. Verse 5. Now, while the bridegroom was delaying, it's going to take longer than it's expected. Now, you could immediately draw an application of patience here and, and pray in repentance, right? <laughs> how, how often we want things to happen much sooner than what they do. While the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. Who? All of, the the all of them. Notice it wasn't the foolish that fell asleep. No. All of them got tired. Yeah. All of them fell asleep. Now they fell asleep with the lit fire going. <laughs> I don't know how smart that was across the board, but that doesn't play in here, okay? And then, verse 5, But at midnight there was a shout, Behold! The bridegroom, come out to meet him. Now, immediately, what happens? <laughs> then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. They all woke up. But there's a problem. The bridegroom is on his way. He's finally going to arrive. Verse 8, the foolish said to the prudent, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. Surely you'll help somebody out in need. And look what they say. But the prudent answered, No, there will not be enough for us and you. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready. ready. Right. Pay attention to that. Prepared and ready. <clears throat> those who were ready went in with him to the to the wedding feast mm -mm. and the door was shut so stop for a second everybody remember Matthew chapter 8 and the turning point he, Jesus turns to the Jews and he probably points at this centurion and he says I tell you the truth I have not found such great faith in all of Israel but I tell you that many will come from east and west and will recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
Then we read 22. And what does 22 deal with? A king who what? A king who does what? Has a wedding feast. Has a wedding feast for his son. Now remember, in 22 it's a parable. Everybody remember that? Has a wedding feast for his son. And he invites all kinds of people to come. And he says, it's ready. Let's go. Let's get it started. They don't do it. They don't listen. They don't respond. They send out another delegation to the same people. I'm telling you, all this food is really good. It's ready to go. We're ready to have the wedding now. Nope, I'm too busy. Nope, I'd rather go to the store. You know what? I'm going to kill the people that keep coming after me, inviting me to this really awesome thing. So notice the hard-heartedness. The king responds in judgment and retaliation, decimates their existence, and then calls new servants and says, go out to the highways, invite everyone, good or evil, doesn't matter, tell them to come and fill up the wedding hall, feast is ready to go. And then you have the guy who's improperly clothed. And remember, what we've researched about wedding feasts was we found out they last a long time, and that in a wedding feast situation, for them not to be wearing the garment is because they refused to put on what the master or the king had provided as proper attire for the situation. And so since they weren't dressed properly, they made it into the wedding feast, but because they weren't dressed, they couldn't stay. They were cast into the outer darkness, and that place is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Why? Because many are called, but few are chosen. Now we're looking through this parable right here about the kingdom of heaven, same subject matter that we're dealing with. And we're taking under consideration the fact of we've got to have some context to get into the main point of our text because that's where it mentions the outer darkness. And all of a sudden we have this phrase pop up again that we've got to deal with, which is the idea of a wedding feast. <clears throat> now here's what's interesting. In Matthew 22 and in Matthew 25 right here, they're all listed as a illustration or we can even say it's parabolic in some way, to where in situations like that, you don't know if it's really happening or not. But what does Matthew 8 tell us it's different? It's important that we understand this as an interpretive clue because it gives insight into your parables. What does he say in Matthew 8 regarding the wedding feast? That it's in the kingdom of heaven. Okay, it's in the kingdom of heaven. Kind of. Something more particular about it. What's he say? Lily, read it. Uh, like 10 through 12 or what? Yeah, that's fine. Okay. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, Truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Okay, stop and ask yourself this question. When Jesus turns around and talks to the people who are following him and he is marveling at the faith of the centurion, is he telling a parable? No. No, no. which tells no. you what about the wedding feast? No. It's literal. So anytime that you have this association that's moving forward and you've got this revolving understanding, notice, notice the components you have in play. Kingdom of heaven, wedding feast, outer darkness, 
Weeping and gnashing of teeth. Everybody see those things? They're all in play in all of these situations. They're all primary points that are going on here. The first mention here of the idea of outer darkness deals with a literal wedding feast. And when Jesus alludes to in parables, using imagery, figures of speech, whatever you want to say, uh, the, the whole idea that he's getting at, notice that all of a sudden a wedding feast keeps popping up and popping up and popping up. For Jesus' understanding, he's not telling you something that is just an illustration or a setting to put a situation in. He's telling you about a literal situation. He's using the imagery to paint it for you. But he's saying this wedding feast is going to be a literal occurrence that takes place. And the first thing he lets you know is there's going to be Gentiles in on the wedding feast. That's what he told you, Nate, right? right. It's a literal feast. The sons of the kingdom, the people who were originally reserved in those spots, Israel, are going to be cast out of those positions. Why is that? Because they refused to respond when they were called. That's the reason why. You get into 22 and you deal with the wedding feast. You have a situation where a guy shows up in his skivvies because he refused to put on the wedding garment. What was his problem in relation to the wedding feast? What's that? Rebellion. It could have been rebellion. He failed to appropriate what was freely given to him for acceptance into this situation. Now we're looking at this situation here in 25, and it says, verse 10, And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast. Those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast. And the door was shut. Now here's where the Lordship Salvationist goes crazy. Okay? Verse 11. Later, the other virgins also came saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. Open up for us. But he answered, truly I say to you, I do not know you. And if Jesus doesn't know you, you're obviously not saved. And so therefore, you got to go. You're going to hell. Is that true? But they were in the kingdom already. What's that? They were in the kingdom already. If it's dealing with the kingdom of heaven, they're already there. They were once numbered amongst the virgins. Right. And what merited five virgins' entrance into the wedding feast when the bridegroom came? They were prepared. They were prepared. What? They were prepared. They were prepared. <laughs> they had taken the necessary precautions to make sure they were going to be there. So is that works? Is it? <laughs> you tell me. He's never going to give you a straight answer. I'm never going to give you a straight answer. <laughs> now, here's what we're going to do. If you've got literal word on your on your Bible app, something like that, if you have that Bible app, or if you've got a Bible app, I'm going to ask you to pull up in the New Testament, Matthew 25, and I want you to go down to verse, uh, what is it here, 12. And I want you to... to do a short word study on the word no. I do not know you. And it is the Greek word oida. And if you notice, it's mentioned 297 times in the New Testament. Now, whenever we see a large number of that, here's what we should recognize. Number one, it's got the possibility of a wide range of meaning and could be understood in different ways depending on what. The context, always context. 
Context always determines the meaning of a word and how it's used. And so we see no, 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 no. All throughout here, no. Matthew 22, 29, understanding is the word of how it's used. No, known, new, no, new, no, how, no. All of the Gospels, you've got an occurrence in Mark 5 where it's aware Again, we're going through this real quick. You may say, why in the world is he doing this? Stick with me here. Mark 12, understand, because we're looking at the range of meaning, how these translators chose to translate it into the English language. In Luke, we've got no, knowing, know-how, new, unaware is one instance of how it's used. We keep going down through here. No, no. Ah, John 1, I did not recognize him. Interesting. No, no, no. Keep moving on. Lots of no's. Lots of no's. Conscious. What's that? Conscious. Conscious would be the idea, being conscious of something. Let me see here. Knowing, no, no. And if you go down to first, is it first Thessalonians? First Thessalonians 5.12. Same word. Listen to this. But we request of you, brethren, stop from just what we know, saved or unsaved. Saved. Watch this. But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction. That's the first definition that I've got. It's the first definition in your heading? Yeah. It's the idea of appreciation or recognition... Or coming to a better knowledge of someone or a more thorough knowledge of a situation. Oida can be the idea of recognizing someone publicly. It can be the idea of appreciating someone. So when you think through that idea and you look here, having researched the original word, think of what this says. Later the other virgins also came saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. But he answered, truly, truly, or sorry, truly I say to you, I do not appreciate you. I do not recognize you. Ouch. That's what it means by I do not know you. Were they virgins? Yes. Did they have lamps? Yes. What was the problem? They weren't prepared. They weren't prepared for when the bridegroom came. That's what it came down to. What? What was they were out of gas. They were out of gas. Exactly. The problem was is a lack of preparation. Now, here's the thing. When we talk about being prepared in that way, where does the personal responsibility fall? Isn't it eerily similar that it was also the personal responsibility of the guy who was given the wedding garment to put it on? You know, I think I think about that whenever my kid is fighting me on wanting to put on his jacket. You know, I'm like, you better put this on. You're going to be gasping out of darkness, right? But, but, uh, yeah, you will be in anguish over this situation. More chattering of teeth. Mm-hmm. But here's here's the thing. Does that seem to make more sense to you? Does everybody see that because the virgins who weren't prepared were Johnny Come Latelys to the whole situation? It doesn't mean that they were put in hell. That's what I was just going to ask. But were they? They, they got to be there. They got to. They were in the outer darkness. Their problem was a failure to prepare. Would we agree that if Jesus is telling a parable, the big point he wants us to get is be prepared? In fact, look what it says here. 
Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. When you're raptured, your time of service to the Lord is over. And you were either living life faithfully, you were persevering and enduring because you were resting in all that Christ is for you, or you were discouraged because of a life in the flesh, because you're rejecting Bible doctrine, because you became like some servants that turned around and because of their master was delayed, which is at the end of 24, you can read that as well, because their master was delayed, they, they ended up eating and drinking gluttonously and they ended up beating their fellow servants. You wonder why some Christians get all mad ball about some things? Be the reason why. is because they lost sight of the imminent coming of their king. Now, does that mean that they didn't go to heaven? See, some people look at that and go, well, if this is talking about the rapture, there's your partial rapture right there. Only five got to go. That precludes the idea that everyone in heaven is part of the wedding feast, but that's not your greatest problem. It precludes the idea that you could only be raptured if you earned it. So is this all going back to rewards? It's all going back to rewards. And a place of recognition. In the kingdom. In the kingdom. Mm -hmm. So the people who then those who serve him the interpretation, but the, the, the idea that you're there, but you you weren't ready when the, you know, when the bridegroom arrived. Yeah, is you, you were saved, but you were being stupid. You were pulling your pockets inside out trying to find change that yeah. was worthy of Jesus's acceptance to let you into that situation. Yeah, you did not get the opportunity to dine intimately with him. Yeah, everybody see that. You had to sit on the outside out here and press your nose up against the glass and go, gosh, if I had to do it all over again, I would have lived much more faithfully and made those hard decisions that were more in alignment with the truth instead of caving to peer pressure, instead of folding on these things. Because here's the thing, if it's, if it's got to do with, well, who's in heaven and who's in hell and the five virgins who weren't prepared are in hell, then salvation's by works. And the Lordship Salvationist eats this up. I dare you find one commentary by a Lordship Salvationist that won't sit here and conclude, see, if you're not ready to go, you're not going. Everybody see that? Notice it wasn't you're not going. It's the fact that you can't get in the wedding feast. I've had the argument of, oh, but there's secondary application. Like, that doesn't mean you reinterpret it. Yeah, not at all. It doesn't change interpretation at all. Yeah. Not at all. So having that understanding of what we're walking into and it bracketing this idea of you don't know the day or the hour, that is coming. Be prepared. Be prepared. Be watchful. Be sober. Be mindful. I got plenty of time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, you've always seen that, right? Uh, the people. What does it say? The people that are going to accept, you know, accept Jesus at the eleventh hour, die at ten forty-five, or something like that. I mean, it's always, you know, we kind of poke humor about about that, but it's true. It's a thing where you want to be ready. What did you have? Did you want to say something? Well, I was just going to actually say that, you know, like you. People think it does. I don't have to do it now. I can put it off till later, or I can, you know, have fun while I'm young, and then do a bunch of things for Jesus when I get older and get a bunch of rewards for it. Mm-hmm. But you like you don't you don't know how that's going to work out. And here's what it seems to be. You, you're right. You don't know. Here's what it seems to be: is faithful actions by the believer. And, and understand the reason why I say the word faithful is what was the turning point in Matthew eight. It was faith. I have not found such faith, great faith in all of Israel. I tell you the truth. People are going to come from everywhere, east and west. What was the centurion? 
He was a Gentile, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. They're going to dine at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Everybody mm-hmm. see that? So he's drawing immediate connection and application for them. It's not about doing more and trying harder. Any works that are done apart from faith are not works that are going to be rewarded. Those are the works that are going to be burnt up at the judgment seat of Christ. He will not reward those things. We always think that, oh, I'm in here, I'm doing a good job. Well, I'm going to stick in here and do it. It has a lot less to do with doing, and it has a lot more to do with being. Being who I am in Christ because of what Christ has made me. And because I'm so focused in and reliant upon those positional truths of my identification with Jesus and his death, burial, and his resurrection, I'm living that life because he's living his life. It's a continual walk in fellowship. Yes, it is not an a, it's not a spiritual AA meeting. <laughs> it's not, I just need to get all my stuff in order. It's never that. It's never, I just need to reposition things in my life. It, it's coming to a knowledge, a set knowledge, where your mind is stayed on the idea of, I am who Christ says I am and who he's made me to be. And when I wrestle my identity back away from him and try to live my life, I'm living in the flesh, and there's nothing merited in the flesh. The only things that are merited are what we are, who we are in Christ, and what he does through us. So the only the only rewardable works are all the works he does through us. Our job is to believe him and get out of his way. That's it. Arlene. To clarify, the reason, okay, the guy that went to the wedding didn't put on the robe. Even though it was given was to him. It, yeah. Was, so was that pride in his own self? And he, and he didn't accept the righteousness of, of God? You'll have to ask him when you get there. <laughs> <laughs> hold on, hold on, hold on. He didn't accept the righteousness of God. That's not the problem. Okay. No. That's not the problem. No. The fact that he's there right. shows that he received the righteousness of God because Christ is the righteousness of God. Okay. So it's not the problem with him being positionally righteous. That's not the issue. What it sounds like is he didn't. He, he he had refused the practical righteousness that Christ wanted to institute in his life. In other words, he's 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 he's, he's saved, but he just didn't want to live for the Lord. Remember when when we went over that, and I had said something about like, well, is that just like like since we're it's obviously a work of his that is that him just being you know, I think I said a lazy Christian or something like that, and. We didn't conclude anything then, but this, yeah. like I, that was the kind of idea that I had. I didn't know it was really about rewards or anything like that, but that was the kind of like idea of that's works, but he just didn't care enough or didn't want to. Possibly. I, I think it's very interesting that the thing that is exposed the most in the man in the wedding feast who's not properly dressed is his skin. Think about that. It's the idea of flesh. He doesn't have a covering. He's not operating in the context of his covering. So I think what it's dealing with there is his problem was not not putting on what God had given him, not putting on Christ. There's there's a lot like Paul will say to you in Ephesians or sorry in Romans thirteen fourteen, uh, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and do not gratify the desires of your sinful nature. The desires of your sinful nature are the flesh. How do you combat that? You put on Jesus Christ. And that actually means wear him like a shirt. It means to cover yourself with him. 
Why? Because you're already covered in him. You see what I'm saying? And whenever we try to live apart from his already covering that he's given to us, what we're saying is, is my flesh will suffice in this situation just fine. That is the essence of religion. My works are going to connect the dots and make it happen, and I'm going to get by with this. That's ignorance. That's what I meant, but I didn't say it right. <laughs> well, you have to clarify what you mean by righteousness. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. because of the West, second way you said it is how I... I think, I think maybe an easier way to understand it is the flesh is our self-life, yeah. and in the spirit is our Christ life. And we're either operating in one of the two, moment by moment, day by day, hour by hour. We can either make a choice to assume our position in Christ and reckon it to be so and live in that way. Or we can fall back on our flesh patterns and try to handle things on our own. And the believer in the flesh. They were in the flesh. Yep, exactly. So here's the thing. Now we understand a little bit more about what the word it means in verse 14. But it took us 41 minutes and 21 seconds in order to get there. But here's the thing. That's why you do Bible study. That's why it takes time. That's why you have to... The, the great thing about this is, is we're dealing with the text and we're walking our way through it and we're, we're debating and arguing and offering suggestions. And that's what we want to do. We want to try to come to a deeply rooted understanding. What am I reading here? What is he telling me? What is the frame of reference in the context? Where's Jesus at? Who's he talking to? That's just good Bible study. It's good basic Bible study method. So we'll have to pick up next week and we'll have to jump into what we're talking about in 14. I just have a quick question. Go for it. The ten foolish virgins that didn't have oil, the lamps were out. Five of them. Five, 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 five. You know what I mean. But yet they found their way to the cellars and back in the dark. What's the point? This is just me. This is just me. I I think I there and this is true. If you're in hermeneutics class, if you're in hermeneutics class, we're going to talk about genre in about a month. Uh, and when we deal with the idea of parables, there is a tendency to want to read into every detail of the parable where you take the parable probably further than what Jesus intended for us to take it, because he's got one big thing he wants us to get. The details will line up with a lot of things, and that is the frame of reference, the context for how we understand what he's talking about. Uh, but usually Jesus just out and out tells you, and it's our job to understand what the conclusion is of why he wants us to know that. But I, I wonder, I, and this isn't anything against you, Laverne, please don't take it personally. I wonder if sometimes we have a tendency to want to take parables a little bit further than what Jesus meant for them to go. Um, but don't let, that, don't let that keep us from understanding the main thing. We need to be prepared. It could happen at any moment. Everybody good? good? Okay, so next week when we get together, we'll start here in verse 14. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word, and thank you, God, that it encourages us and it warns us, and it tells us about the better life to live and all that you've provided to live it, uh, and lets us know the consequences for failing to trust you at your word uh, so that Christ be formed in us, Lord. I pray, God, that you would um, add these things to our heart and our understanding, that we would become more and more convinced of your truth. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.